Well, good morning, Northridge. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for being here, and all of you who are guests, whether here in Plymouth or at our regional campuses, welcome regional campuses. Great to have you here, guests. And I tell you, the last couple of weekends I've been out of pocket, but we were well served by our speakers in the last couple of weeks, weren't we? I appreciate our campus pastor, Colston Copeland, who gave the Memorial Weekend talk, and I appreciate so much. Yeah. He's young and he's from Texas, but he's, he's growing on me, right? You know, I mean, he, he's coming along. And then, you know, it's really hard sometimes to find someone to fill the platform. And so we have found that when we're really, really, really desperate, Harvey's okay. And, uh, oh my gosh. I, every time I watch Harvey, it's like going to preacher school. That guy knows how to go at it, right? And then, I uh, appreciate Harvey being here. And then, and then I was actually, though out of town, I was watching the live stream of our service, and uh, that song, Glory, blew me away. Didn't our team do a phenomenal job? I hope, I, our team put together a, a well-done video that's been posted on social media, and I hope you'll share that around the world. You know, people don't know that the Church of Jesus Christ can communicate truth in such creative and engaging ways, and if you share it, they'll know, and I hope that you'll be inviting people on in. But once again, welcome. We're in the series called Jim. It's a, it's a study of the book of James in the Bible, and I'm going to kick this weekend off with two questions. Two questions. Here's the first. What would you do if you got $10 million? I mean, what would you do? I mean, and I, I'm not asking you to do some deep dive thinking here. I just, I want you to kind of enumerate the first couple of things that dance into your head. So I'll ask questions and see if you'll play along with me. How many of you thought, if I got $10 million, I'd do something like pay off my debt? Raise your hand. Wow. You have that much debt. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. How many of you first thought you had, if I got $10 million, I'd, I'd buy a house? Yeah, that makes sense. How many of you thought, okay, if I got $10 million, I'd quit my job. Raise your hand. Keep them raised. Keep them raised. I'm looking for Northridge staff members right now. I'm trying to... <laughs> How many of you would say, first thing danced in my head if I got $10 million is, man, I'd give a boatload to the church. Raise your hand. You're lying. <laughs> Here's the reality. We would do, if we got $10 million, we would do all the things that we couldn't afford before that we thought would have made us happy. That's what we would do. If we got $10 million, we all have these things in our life that we think, man, if I could do that or if I had that or if I could purchase that or if I could go there, man, it would eliminate this big empty spot in my life and make me happy. And if we got $10 million, we would, we would buy those things. And you know what we'd find? That's not what was causing our emptiness. That wasn't the problem at all. But that's what we would do. Now, and let me, let me ask the second question now. And here's the second question, very, very different. What would you do for a million dollars? I mean, what would you do, I mean, in order to enable yourself to get $10 million? What would you do for it? I, I have to tell you, I contemplated this, and this is, this is really tough to know because it's so abstract, isn't it? It's like, no one's going to come and give me $10 million, so it's pretty tough to put myself in that place of, of the reality of it. But, 
But I'm going to ask you to really think this thing through. If you really genuinely had the opportunity to get $10 million, what would you do for it? Maybe as a little bit of help um, would be the survey that was done 25 years ago for a book called The Day America Told the Truth. This is 25 years ago. And these authors actually asked this question, what would you do for $10 million? And in this survey, they promised absolute anonymity so they could get very, very honest and genuine answers, and then they recorded them in this book. And I'm going to tell you, some of their answers are crazy. And, and it's not just a few outflyers. It's, uh, it's like big bulks of people gave crazy answers. For, for example, in their survey, of all these many people they surveyed, 25% of them said, 25% said that they would abandon their families for $10 million. Gosh. 23% of all those people surveyed said that they would actually become prostitutes for one week or more for $10 million. There were 16% of all the respondents, 16% said... For $10 million, they'd leave their spouses. Some of you are saying, gosh, I'd leave for nothing. <laughs> uh, 7% of all the respondents, it blows my brain, 7% of all these people that answered the question, what would they do for $10 million, said they'd kill a stranger. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is crazy to me. I mean, just downright crazy. But before you dismiss this, can I just note a couple of things? I know it's hard for some of us to, to believe that there are people who would do these kind of things for $10 million. But why is it hard for us to believe? Now, listen very carefully. Don't people do these kinds of things for a lot less than $10 million? Aren't people abandoning their families all the time for a lot less than leaving their spouse. In fact, they're paying to get rid of their spouses, if I'm not mistaken. And I mean, there are people who prostitute themselves in this world, and they're not getting $10 million for it. And sadly, it doesn't take $10 million for someone to kill a stranger. I hope that you're praying for Orlando and that whole community and for the unbelievably ravaging effects of the damage that people can do. It is absolutely ludicrous. But here's the reality that I think this survey and this question affords us to focus on. The reality is that money drives most people's activities in this world. In fact, it doesn't drive just their activity, it drives people. It's, it's their driving, compelling reason. And whether we admit it or not, it's the number one value in our world. It really is. Do you realize money drives our politics? I mean, it, it drives our politics. And I'm not talking about the political candidates. I'm talking about us. See, those of us who don't have as much as we think we should have are often driven to the candidates that promise us more. And those of us who have been privileged to have more are often driven to the candidates who promise to take less. Is this not true? 
Money drives the whole deal. And money drives business. Money drives entertainment. Money drives most of our personal lives. It is literally the engine upon which humanity seems to be driven. And this isn't new. I, it's not like I'm up here to blast the 21st century and I'm an anti-21st century culture person. No way, man. I love the century we're in. I love the times we're in. But the truth is, humanity has always been driven towards the money thing. Money and the pursuit of money was the number one value and number one priority in the time that Jesus walked on this planet, which explains why Jesus talked more about money than any other topic. This might surprise some of you religious types, but Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven, hell, faith, sin, forgiveness, or anything else. He talked more about money. Why? Because money's the number one driving priority on the planet when he was there. And by the way, this also explains why Jim, the author of the book that we're now looking into and studying, wrote upon this issue that we're going to look at this weekend because it was the driver in his world. It was relevant in his day, and know this, it, was, it is extremely relevant in ours. And it's, look at, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know this. As soon as I started talking about money, did you hear how quiet this auditorium got? Yeah, that's how relevant it is. And sadly, most of us get it wrong. And so we open Jim's letter. And you know what truth we can extract from it? This is a truth that can totally change our lives if we'll listen to it. And I know most of us won't. Most of us are so wrapped up in this thing about money and our value of money that we don't listen to anything that creates tension in the way we use it and the way we view it. I've been a pastor for 35 years, and I'm going to tell you, this is the topic that you like least Whenever I've surveyed people, say, what would you like me to talk about? None of you said, How money. You talk about sex? Yeah, talk about sex even more, Brad. That'd be awesome, but, but not money. Because it's so personal and because we know we're at tension in the way we utilize it. And here's the truth that Jim writes to us. The wrong view of money ultimately leads to misery. The wrong view of money ultimately leads to misery. And this is really important because none of us wants to be miserable. N no one in that survey was saying, I would choose to do these things to get $10 million so that I can be more miserable. They were thinking I would go through those miserable experiences and do those miserable things so that I could get $10 million and finally not be miserable. The only problem is they've got it all wrong. Because when you have the wrong view of money, it really will ultimately destroy you. And that's what Jim tells us. Look at James 5.1. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Weep and wail. Have you ever seen one of those um, publishing clear, publishers clearinghouse sweepstake winner things? Have you ever seen that? Or have you ever seen the lottery winning thing, you know, mega jackpot? Do you notice they're not weeping and wailing? I mean, they're celebrating and blah. But... But if you read the stories of these people, very, very often they have very tragic results and there's a lot of weeping and wailing. You know why? Because what they thought they were getting isn't what they were getting at all. 
Because what they were missing isn't what they were really missing in their heads. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. The wrong view of money will lead to misery. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking you get an out on this. I get it because the first time I read this, I felt the same thing. Well, that verse doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. Be honest, how many of you thought that? Yeah, that's debatable, really. Did you know that more than one-third of the world's population, in case you have a hard time with that, it's about, did you know that more than two and a half billion people on this planet live on $2 or less a day? Did you know that? Do you think those people would call you rich? Yeah. So it's debatable, but I want you to know whether you're rich or poor really doesn't play into this truth at all, to be honest with you, because the truth is the truth, whether you have a lot or a little, because the wrong view of money makes you miserable when you don't have much, because you think it's not having much that's making you miserable, and, and when you have a lot, you're wondering why you're still miserable, even though you have a lot, and it doesn't play in at all. In fact, look at 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money... Not, not money. I've heard so many of you say, money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. Loving money is the root of all kinds of evil. When you make it your value, when you make it your pursuit, when you make it what you think life consists of, it creates all kinds of bad choices like that survey indicated. Some people, the Bible says, eager for money because they loved it, because they thought that could replace what was missing in them, have wandered even away from faith, away from God, and as a result have pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's what it's teaching. When you love money, you think money will do what only God can do. And it doesn't work. And so Jim literally writes to us the wrong views of money, and he just lays them out. And I, I'm just going to lay them out for you. It's not going to take long, and then we'll talk about the right view and what we can do about it. But first thing he tells us is that here's a wrong view of money. To think that money is the ultimate value of life, wrong view. To think that money is the ultimate value in life, wrong view, leads to misery. Look at what he says, Jim says in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Let's just take a while to contemplate that picture, right? But here's what he's saying. You put your trust in that which rots. And when you add up the sum of your life when you're investing in that which rots, your life ends up being worthless. That's what happens when you make money the ultimate value in life. They made money the sum total of their lives, and so they experienced nothing but misery. And then he says, you want to know the, the wrong view of money? It's to have the view that money is the source for your security and hope. And this is what they were doing. They, they, they believed that money would give them security and hope. And James 5.3 says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. You've hoarded it. Why are they hoarding it? Why are they stockpiling it? Why are they grabbing it all and making sure they keep it all for themselves and get as much as they can? Because that's where their security will come from. That's where their hope will come from. And they were wrong. You, you try and make money your security and hope, you are going to be very, very miserable, Jim's telling us. He goes on and says, the wrong view of money is to believe that money is more valuable than integrity. 
Money's not more valuable than integrity. They're saying money's more valuable than character. I mean, I'll have to compromise my character in order to get more money because money's the valuable. Look at how they did it in James 5.4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen. You know, you, you promise these people if they work for you, you'll pay them this and you'll care for them. And the, 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 the wages you failed to pay them, after they did the work out for you, they... They're crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. They made money more valuable than integrity. He says, you want to know what the wrong view of money is that leads to misery? It's to believe that money is the key to finding happiness and fulfillment. I mean, that's just absolutely the wrong view. In James 5, verse 5, he says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. And uh, can we go back to the question? What would you do if you got $10 million? You would do all the things that you think were keeping you from happiness and fulfillment. And you know what you'd find? That's not what was keeping you from happiness and fulfillment, and it'd drive you nuts. Well, if that's not it, what is it? What's the meaning of life? This is why some people who have so much become so crazy. It's because there's nothing they can dream about fixing their problem. And he's saying, this is what you've done, and all you're doing is preparing yourselves for the day of slaughter. You're literally just destroying yourself because the wrong view of money leads to misery. And then he says, you want to know what the wrong view of money is? It's the fact that money is more valuable than people. When you start believing that money is more valuable than people, when you start stepping into the arena where you'll hurt others in order to benefit yourself financially, you're in trouble. James 5, 6, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not even opposing you. They were just in your way. Can I ask a question? Do you recognize any of these views from our world today? Of course, without a doubt, right? They're all over the place. They're, it's the same world. Different technology, same world. Can I ask a little bit more personal question? Do you recognize any of these views in yourself? I do. I, I'm serious. I've been so steeped in this culture, and my nature drives me like yours does you, and, and I'm going to tell you, it's... It's killing us because we worship the name of the one who can deliver us from this misery, but we still don't give up the value we have for his replacement, money. And so here's the application. I mean, Jim, just it's all over his writings to us. He's trying to help us. Remember, he, he's not writing about this to make us miserable. He's writing to help save us from misery. This... This talk isn't a negative talk. This talk is a positive talk because it challenges the fact that our view is what's killing us. We blame God and we blame the world and we blame religion and we blame the church. The truth is it's our view in spite of our words that's driving us to misery. And so Jim leads us to this idea of if we're going to experience life as God designed it, a life of fullness and a life of joy and a life of contentment, if we're going to experience life as God designed it, then we have to get the right view of money. We have to get the right view. But that's not enough. We have to go beyond just getting the right view of money, and we have to live by that view. We have to live by it. And this is really important because I'm going to tell you, 
Many people who put their butts in seats in churches quite often, in case you missed it, you <laughs> know the right view. I mean, I read those, well, what'd you do for, you know, $10 million? And I read some of those things, you go, those bad people out there. You know, it's like, yeah, wrong, wrong, that's wrong view, wrong view, wrong view, wrong view. Shouldn't do that. So we, we can kind of list the right views. The only problem is we're still living by the wrong view, which explains so much of the misery, which explains so many of the bad choices, which explains so much of the lack of generosity and compassion. And so we have to know the right view, and then we have to actually practice and live it. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk through and share with you some of the right views. And a lot of you are going to go, yeah, of course. But then I'm going to share what it takes to live it. But that's where life can change. You got it? Does it make sense? Do you know where we're going? Okay. Do you know how quiet you're being right now? <laughs> Just want you to know. I notice. All right. Here's, here's the first right view. God, not money, not anything. God is the ultimate value. God is the ultimate value. There were a couple of people up here who said it. And I know Northridge, we're kind of quiet and kind of reserved, except when Harvey Carey's here. But, but we're, we're, I think if I ever say God is the ultimate value, we should like respond to that, don't you? I mean, God's the ultimate value. But if God's the ultimate value, do you know how we live that? We live that by making God the sum total of our life. Oh, don't want to be a fanatic or anything. Yes, you do. If God's the ultimate value, don't you want to be a fanatic for what's valuable? Some of you are more fanatical for the Detroit Lions who've won nothing in my entire lifetime. I'm sorry. We've got some Detroit Lions who come here, but can I tell you the truth? Win the Super Bowl. You know? I mean, that'd be great. But here, bottom line, you, you cheer for everything, but... God being the ultimate value, we must make him the sum total of our lives. It'd be great if we wore football jerseys with Jesus' name on the back. That'd be awesome. Make him the sum total. Jesus says it. Look at Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And look at what, what he's talking about 2,000 years ago. You can't serve both God and money. Why did he say that? He said it because he was speaking to a circle of people who sang the right words, who opened the right book, who said the right things, who put the right name on the back of their jersey and clapped at the appropriate times, but they were still living for the wrong thing. Do you know why so many of us who call on Jesus are still so far away from the fulfillment of his promises in our life? It's because we still haven't transferred the sum total of our life from what this world taught us to what Jesus is. We have to make him the sum total. When you add up everything in your life, if it adds up to Jesus, you've got everything. If you add up the sum total of your life and Jesus isn't at the center, you've got absolutely nothing. Great example is Paul. Paul was a religious guy who 
It did a lot of great things and it added up to nothing and then he found Jesus and he made Jesus the sum total of his life and it added up to everything. Look what Paul says in Philippians 3, 7. Whatever it was to my prophet before, what I thought added up to something was nothing and I now consider losing it the greatest thing that ever happened to me for the sake of Christ who's now the sum total of my life. And he says, I now know, chapter 4, verse 12, what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have nothing. And I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to have a lot. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. He says, Jesus being the sum total of my life gives me contentment no matter what I do or don't have. And then he, he adds the, the next verse, and this is interesting because Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what you can never do without Christ? Be content. Do you know what's impossible for you to do when Jesus is at the center of your life? Be discontent. Can I ask you? Are you content or discontent? Is Jesus at the center or not? freaks the crap out of me because it speaks to me you know what the right value is the right value is that God is the source by the way if you were here for Harvey last week who's the source God's the source that's what he talked about but but God is the source of everything money money is for most people God is the source for joy fulfillment security and hope God's the source for these things so that means I can have absolutely nothing in this world and have God and still have joy, fulfillment, security, and hope. Or I can have everything this world offers and still not have joy, fulfillment, security, and hope. But if we're going to actually live this, then we have to look to and trust him, not money. We have to look to him, trust him, if we're going to find what he's a source for. Matthew 6.33, Jesus said it, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that people are striving for and struggling for and trying to find with money, they'll be given to you as well. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet... And would you say this next word with me? Okay, we're going to do this one more time. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All your needs, emotional, relational, spiritual, you name it. All. All means all, and that's all all means. Can, can I give you this? And I, I believe this is tweetable. I believe this is Snapchatable. I believe this is Foursquareable. I believe this is Facebookable. We need more of Him, way more than we need more money. That's what we need. Now, just as an aside, and I'm not going to spend like two minutes on this, but um, in fact, I would have thrown it out of the talk if I hadn't put it in a printed outline where you'd be going, what are those blanks? What are those blanks? What are those blanks? <laughs> but <laughs> you people need medicine, but that's a whole other thing too. That... Some of you are thinking, well, if I'm supposed to live out like that. I mean, what about saving? What about saving? I mean, they're being judged for hoarding. What about saving? Do you know, you know what the difference between hoarding and saving is? Hoarding's done for me for all the wrong reasons, valuing money. Saving, saving's done for the right reasons and 
is putting God still at the center. And so I, let me give you some right reasons for saving, and then we'll move on. I hope you'll study these things on your own. The one right reason for saving is to prevent impetuous, wasteful spending. I don't know about you, but I, I mean, when, 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 you, when you hit a season where it like rains in for you a little bit and you get a little bit extra income, what do you want to do? Buy all those things you think you're missing. And so saving allows you to balance it out to say, okay, it's raining now, but it might be drought later, but I I can have a balanced life because I'm saving. I'm not impetuously spending. Any of you ever spend impetuously? Look around. Everyone without their hand raised is a liar going to hell. (laughs) Not going to hell if Jesus saved you, but you get the point. (laughs) Pretty dramatic, right? Jeez. Another good reason for saving is to provide for your families because, you know, the economy goes with ebbs and flows, and if you save, you can provide for your family consistently, right? Even in bad times. First Timothy 5.8 says, if you don't provide for your relatives, especially your immediate family, you're, it's like denying the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. And so saving gives us the ability to invest appropriately in family provisions. And finally, saving is just a way to properly manage all the resources God's given us. Because we can save them, not to hoard them for ourselves, not because we're finding security and hope, but so that we can invest them appropriately in ways that benefit God most. And you can read the verses that I give you there. But, but I mean, saving can be positive, but only if done for the right reasons. But let me give you another right view of money. God honors generosity. That's the right view of money. God honors generosity. But, but that's easy to say. Yeah, God honors generosity. Woohoo! Let's go eat. You know, that kind of thing. But if we're going to actually live by that right view, we have to define our lives by giving rather than taking. Ooh. Do you know, and I'm, this isn't a judgment, this, I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. I don't want you to be miserable as people are in this world. I want you to know the promises of God. Did you know the majority of people here don't give? My people, oh, this place, look at all these people. This place must be rich. If you're rich, you're not sharing it. That's kind of the deal. The majority of people don't give here. And yet the majority of people here go, love Jesus, Jesus is supreme value, go Jesus, Jesus is on my jersey, woo, woo. The problem is their words. See, God honors generosity, and if we really believed that God was the ultimate value and him honoring us was the greatest thing we could experience, wouldn't we be defined by giving rather than taking? But see, we say it, we just don't mean it. We really believe getting for ourselves is the only way we can have joy and fullness and all the things we're looking for. So we'll say the right words about God, but we won't be defined by giving. Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. One man gives freely, and yet they gain even more. That's weird. Another withholds unduly. They hoard. They keep it all for themselves, and yet they come to poverty. Weird. How can one give and yet gain, and the other, you know, hold and become poor? Because a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed, because God is the ultimate provider. Can, Can I just tell you that if we're not giving... It's a good sign we're hoarding. 
if we're not giving, it's a good sign we're looking. Can I just note here? This is really relevant, isn't it? This is us. If we're not giving, it's a good sign we're looking to money for our happiness and fulfillment and security and hope. If we're not giving, it's a good sign we're, we're putting a higher value on money than on God. It's a good sign that we've got the wrong view and Jim's warning and I want to give it to you because I have to give it to myself. Jim's telling you, even if you talk the right line about God, if you're not truly being defined by giving instead of taking, you're headed for misery. And so can I just explain something to you? This is why so many of us in the name of Jesus are still so miserable. Miserable in our relationships, miserable in our jobs, miserable in our lives, thinking we're missing out, thinking God's been ripping us off, thinking God's missing the story of our lives and messing it up. And the truth is, we're the ones that are living by the wrong view. And, and I, this is no judgment on you. The only one who knows about your giving is you. And God. There's another right view, by the way. God's pleasure is all that matters in the end. That's the right view. Not how much you have and how much you die with, but God's pleasure is all that matters in the end. And if we're going to live that, then if God's pleasure is all that matters in the end, then we need to choose to value integrity in people above personal gain. Now, that's antithetical to our world, right? To choose to do right over gain, to choose to care about people and invest in people instead of ourselves, that's just not normal. And yet look what God says, Proverbs 22, 1, a good name, character, is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed, respected, is better than silver or gold. <laughs> Would someone tell America? John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. We have to choose to value integrity and people above personal gain if God's pleasure is all that matters. And you know why this is important? This is, I hope you'll listen because many of you might not know this. This is important because we're all going to stand in front of Jesus one day. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether they were good or bad. You know, we can kid each other. I can kid you. You can kid me. We can look like we're all doing it. But he knows, and he's going to hold us to account. At the end of our lives, we're all going to stand in front of Jesus. And I know some of you are saying right now in your head, well, I don't believe in Jesus well, then you're going to have a surprise appointment. <laughs> He's got you scheduled, friend. We're going to give an account of how we lived and the view we had and whether or not money was the ultimate value or God, whether we lived for our own pleasure or God's pleasure. Can I just ask you, which is it for you? Hey, let me give you this conclusion to the whole deal. 
And I'm going to give it in two parts. I'm going to give you part one of the conclusion, and then we're going to sing a song to give you time to contemplate it, and then I'll come up and I'll finish with a quick final conclusion. But I, I hope you'll get this. You, you can't take money with you when you die, but you can send it on ahead. You, you can't, you might not know this, the way people live, you'd never know it, but did you know you can't take money with you when you die? How many of you have ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Can't do it. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And listen to these words carefully. They're going to have gym relevance here. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do you recognize that language from Jim's letter? If you've heard the first talk in this series, if you didn't, I hope you'll listen to it. It's online. Uh, Jim is saying in this letter that if we're putting our love in money, we're going to be miserable because it corrodes and it's worth nothing. In the first talk of the series, I told you Jim was Jesus' half-brother. Who, who is he quoting? Jesus. Because money and earthly treasures just corrodes, he says. And then look at the next verse, verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy. I mean, if your treasure's in heaven, man, nothing's going to corrode it and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then he really captures it. These are the words of Jesus. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Can I ask you, where's your treasure? If we're going to experience life as God designed it, instead of being miserable like it is when we have the wrong views, if we're going to experience the joy of Jesus in our lives, then we have to get the right view of money and we have to live by it. This, this view that we can literally store up treasures in heaven that last forever, that there are values bigger than the values on this planet. It's vital to living well, which is why so few of us live well. So just before I share with you the last thought in this conclusion of this talk, I, I want to give you a few moments to really contemplate this truth in your life that you can't take money with you. It's of no value, but you can send it on ahead. If I have you and nothing else, I have 
If I have you and nothing else, I have everything. The thing that I have to do is contemplate in my own life whether those are words or reality. And you know what I found? I found that for me in those seasons of life when Jesus and his promises and heaven and eternity are most real to me, it's easy for me to believe if I have him, I have everything, even if I have nothing else. But in those seasons when I feel like that whole Jesus and heaven thing's a bit abstract, you know, it might be true, it might not be, I want to pour more into now. Do you relate to that at all? Which leads me to the real, I think, foundational conclusion if this is all going to work, you have to know where you're going. You have to know where you're going. If you don't know for sure Jesus is real, you don't know for sure you're going to be with him forever, you're going to put it all in today, man. It's like a five-year-old. Offer them 10 cents now or 100 bucks when they're 10, what are they going to take? 10 cents now, pal. And that's how we live before God, unless we know where we're going. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who really believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, and this is the word, know that you have eternal life. If you know it, it's easy to invest in. If you don't, you won't. 
And so just before we conclude the service, I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in a word of prayer here in Plymouth, Northridge, Brighton, Northridge, Celine, Northridge, Crocille, and all of you who are with us around the world. If you'd just bow with me in this moment. If you're already a believer, I know you were challenged by these truths because I have been too. And I just encourage you to be having a conversation with God, with Jesus about your view and how you're living. But if you're here right now and you're saying, I don't know for sure about this heaven thing. I don't know that I'm, I don't know. Why don't you pray with me and take a step into a relationship with Jesus and change your world? Take my words and make it your simple expression to God. Just say, Jesus, I, I, I don't want to live for the temporary. In living for the temporary, I've made bad choices. I've sinned. I've done stupid stuff. But I put my faith in this moment in your death on the cross and your resurrection to give me new life. I want you to be the source of my joy and fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you just prayed with me, just before I give you one thought, uh, please let us know. We've put together a letter about next steps you can take in your relationship with God, and this is true here and all around the world where you're watching us. And all you have to do is let us know. If you're in one of our services, just take out the program and rip out that connection card, fill it out, and then check one of those two things at the bottom. It says, you know, you renewed your faith or you received Jesus for the first time. Let us know and put it in the boxes. You're leaving our auditoriums, and we'll send you this information. If you're watching online, just hit the What Next button, and we'll do the exact same thing for you. But here's what you need to know. Living without Jesus, no matter what you have, leaves you miserable. Living with Jesus, no matter what you don't have, leaves you content and complete. Why would you choose anything but living with the right view in the right way? Can't imagine. For those of us who are uh, in the faith now, I want you to know, in two weekends, Sunday, June 26th, I believe it's Sunday, June 26th. We're having one of the great events of Northridge all year long, our annual outside baptism celebration. Two weeks. I'm so excited about it. We do it right on our campus. Uh, that pond is awesome. It's a great place to be baptized. And if you've never been baptized since following Jesus, I, you've got to get baptized. I mean, you're going to love that. And if you're interested, if you're here in Plymouth, just go into, uh, we call it room 1201. It's right behind the guest reception, right off the lobby. And we have a team in there that can answer questions, tell you all about it, sign you up or whatever. And if you're at one of our regional campuses like Northridge Brighton, all you have to do is go on the lobby and uh, the team's there and you can do it. And if you're a part of Northridge, we live to see people's lives transformed by receiving Jesus there is no greater event than being a part of them following Jesus like through baptism. So I hope Sunday, June 26th at 2 p.m., we'll all be here. We'll have a blast and we'll be celebrating baptism. Are you going to do that with me and with us? That'll be great. Okay. And finally, next weekend is Father's Day. Before the barbecue, you need to come to Northridge. It's going to be a relevant talk. We've got over, we've got close to 300 men from high school up that are going to be singing in a choir. And if you're in high school, you're a guy, and you're in high school or up and you're not in this choir, you do know you're going to get demerits at the judgment seat of Christ. You do know that, right? <laughs> 
I'm just kidding about that, but I hope that you'll join the guys that can sign you up in the lobby. Let's make this the greatest Father's Day ever. Bring your fathers, bring your neighbors. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.